Whatever the future holds, I think it will not be the vision of the United States or other uh, Western countries as a college campus. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Today, I want to explain some of the logic for doing the show, for doing this podcast. There are lots of ways of interpreting the 2016 election. Perhaps Hillary Clinton was the wrong candidate. Perhaps most Americans are unwilling to accept black or brown or Muslim people as equal citizens. Or perhaps partisanship is now so deep in America that it simply doesn't matter who the Republican candidate is. The lesson I take from the election is pretty different from all of these possibilities. It is this. When voters are asked to choose between no vision and a nasty vision, the nasty vision wins. For too long, Democrats have, in the words of Barack Obama, sliced and diced the electorate. They've looked for the group, soccer moms one year, hockey moms the next year, who would supposedly swing the election. But things don't work that way. To win elections, you need people to get excited. And for people to get excited, they need to think that you have a vision for how to improve the country. That implies a simple takeaway for 2020. If you run on saying, isn't Donald Trump horrible? We will lose. To win, we need a compelling candidate, and that candidate needs to have a real vision for how to improve America. So that's one of the things that I really want to think about for the next years in all of my work, and particularly on this podcast. How do we develop that vision? Where are the bold policy ideas that allow us to promise average Americans a better future? How can we design a political program that can win against populists, not just once, but in a consistent way over time in 2020 and 2024 and 2028? The survival of liberal democracy may depend on us finding those answers. I'm very happy that Sam Goldman will be my guest on the show today. Sam is one of the most interesting conservative thinkers at work in Washington today. Um, somebody who can take an argument I, I think I know is wrong and make me see the force of it. Uh, Sam is an assistant professor of political science at George Washington University and the director of the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom. He is currently writing a book about the history of American Christian Zionism. Uh, welcome to the studio, Sam. Uh, thank you, Yasha. So you don't usually uh, talk like a 1960s conservative, um, but usually dress like one. And I was hoping to have you describe to podcast listeners what you're wearing today. But but you're a little, you're not quite as dapper as usual today, I have to say. No, today is, today is a casual day. I thought since we were doing a podcast, I, I wouldn't be making a full appearance. Um, but I think that what you have in mind is my um, usual wardrobe of... Um, P3 eyeglasses, uh, tweed, uh, button-down shirts, and knit ties. I hope it's not the vicinity to the White House and Donald Trump that is getting your sartorial spirits down. No, it's it's uh, the wretched cold I've I've acquired. <laughs> so um, I have it on good authority, that authority being you, I believe, that you were a punk rocker in college. Is there a similarity to the spirit of rebellion of being uh, conservative in the academy today and, uh, and a punk rocker when you're growing up? Well, I became a... a punk rocker in, in high school with the usual goals um, of offending my parents and annoying my teachers. But when I reached college, I made the 
terrible discovery that punk rock was was passe. In fact, it was uh, rather boring. But if you really want to uh, annoy your uh, parents and offend your teachers, the best thing to be is a young conservative. So I, I realized <laughs> that that was um, the lifestyle for me. So this is great. This is exactly where I wanted this to go, because the thing that I've been wondering is how similar in spirit, and I don't mean in content, but how similar in spirit you think some of the alt-right sort of rebellion is, whether in a way, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos or even some of the sort of more ideological people in the alt-right, like Richard Spencer, come from a similar spirit of rebellion against uh, mainstream sensitivities and so on. Do you see something of what oh, drove Oh, absolutely. And... Um there have been a number of pieces suggesting that uh, Donald Trump was the punk rock uh, candidate for president. Um, <laughs> of course, that isn't true in any literal way, but he does appeal, I think, to young people, um, especially young men who want to tell the uh, institutions in the midst of which they live to, to go to hell. And not only Trump, but also um Milo Yiannopoulos and even some of the more noxious um, spokesmen for for the alt-right uh, appeal to that, supporting Trump, identifying as a member of the alt-right or uh, as a follower of Gavin McInnes and his, his Proud Boys is a way um, of breaking taboos. And I think that's very appealing for a lot of uh, a lot of people today. So what are some serious questions or even some positions that you think liberals are too reluctant to take seriously and to engage? And especially where, you know, if you want to think about how to rebuild a liberal political program, which is not necessarily your project, but it is mine, that can win elections against populism, that can hold the system together. Um, where do you think that liberals should be looking where perhaps they're reluctant to look? Well, I think that in some ways, um, not only Trump, but the continuing slow motion collapse of the EU is a result of, of the same phenomenon or, or the same set of mistakes, which can be seen on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, for the last 40 or 50 years, roughly speaking, the left has believed that you could have the state without the nation, um, and the right has argued that you can have the nation without the state. <laughs> and what we're learning, I think, is that neither of those social and political forms thrives on its own. Um, so one of the problems, I think, that um, liberals and progressives have had, at least in this country, but I think also in Europe, um, is an extraordinary difficulty talking about the historical and cultural sources of nationalism. When they do, it tends to be uh, in a critical, even prosecutorial mode, revealing racism, sexism, um, and, and other defects. But I think without much recognition um, of, of the positive functions of, of nationalism. And, and again, um, Trumpism or the alt-right seem to me exaggerated reactions uh, to the disappearance of, of um, a, di a discussion of nationalism, a sense of national belonging from American life. So I'm really torn on this. I I mentioned this earlier. I grew up uh, in Germany, born to Polish parents. I was Jewish, which made it complicated in various ways whether I belonged in Germany. 
And when I was a kid, I really loved the idea of European unity and the European Union and the sort of post-national space. Um, so naturally, I'm inclined towards sort of one of the pathologies you talked about, state without a nation. But I think I've started to see the value of a nation. Um, I don't think of myself as a cosmopolitan um, because some people may be able to have the same amount of loyalty, the same amount of solidarity with every place. I don't think I am capable of that. I have special sentiment, special feeling for places where I've lived. I'm more willing to have forms of solidarity with that. I'm more likely to donate money if something terrible happens in New York City, a place that I know and love, than far away. And I, I think perhaps that's some moral failing at some level, but it is how I work and how the huge majority of people work. So I'm very tempted now to say, right, you know, we need to think about how we can have a sense of nationalism. That is not pernicious. Um, some political theorists distinguish between patriotism and nationalism. We don't have to go into those terms, but it's obvious that there could be a form of nationalism that says, but nationalism, say, of Barack Obama. So they're not the red states and the blue states, so the United States of America. That's a form of nationalism, and it's an uplifting form of nationalism. And so perhaps it's possible to recapture this nationalist energy, appeal to patriots who voted for Donald Trump in huge numbers, according to opinion surveys, without selling out some of the things that I think make the nations that I care about, like the United States, special, which is that they're not supposed to discriminate against ethnic minorities, that anybody can be American if they become a citizen, irrespective of their religion or their ethnicity. In practice, I fear that these two things are difficult to square, that when you start really appealing to nationalism, there's a double-edged sword here. If you say, I'm not going to appeal to nationalism at all, then people who appeal to it in the worst way are likely to dominate the discourse. But if you do try to appeal for, to it, I think it can also easily turn. And so how do we navigate this? What does it mean to appeal to nationalism as a politician without feeding the darker sides of nationalism, which in my mind have propelled Donald Trump to the presidency, but also obviously have wreaked havoc historically in many countries? Right. Well, I, I, wish, I wish I had the answer. And I think that's what... Um those of us both on the right and the left um, who are uh, concerned about the threats Trump poses to constitutional government in, in this country are going to have to try to figure out. I, I don't think there is a recipe for it. Um, and to some extent, uh, it's probably a mistake to think of it as, as a theoretical problem. Uh, one of the lessons of this, this election is that arguments and facts and principles are less important to many voters than those of us who think in write about politics for a living would like to believe. So it may be um, a matter of finding a person or persons who can embody a healthier and, and more open form of nationalism, but are also recognized as being profoundly and fundamentally committed to the flourishing of, of the American people. I think Reagan did that effectively. I, I don't want to encourage um, the cult of Reagan worship, which um, <laughs> has been has been uh, 
a defect um, of conservative thought for for a long time. Um, but this was a great part of Reagan's success. It wasn't it wasn't simply what he said, but who he was that communicated a sense of pride and belonging, but also but also of openness. Obama, but, I but, think but, it's fair to say, tried to do that, mm-hmm. um, but was less effective. And that's partly for reasons that are particular to him. Um, I think many Americans found him unbearably professorial. That wasn't a problem for me, um, but uh, I, I think I think did you mean prov- nobody ever finds you unbearably professorial? Well, <laughs> I don't find others unbearably uh, unbearably professorial. Um, <laughs> I, but, I, I, but it was but it was a problem um, for for some people. But it also was due to one of the great limitations or dark sides of American nationalism, which is that um, Americanism historically has been associated with whiteness, and Obama wasn't. Right. So. So I guess the question is how you find the person who can make that appeal and. The problem I always have with approaches, and I, I'm not saying you're saying that, but I think you're close to saying that, that sort of, look, we just have to find the right person who embodies this. It seems to me that people embody things for reasons outside of themselves. And there's nothing so uniquely American about the story of Ronald Reagan. Uh, a lot of why he managed to embody that kind of positive nationalism was his language, right? It's morning in America and all of those kinds of things. Um, and that's true of Barack Obama as well. I mean, the reason why Obama could be that figure, certainly in 2008, is both the divisiveness of what George W. Bush is, against which he was reacting, and the fact that he was going to be the first African-American president. So where do you go looking for that candidate? And is it really sort of a matter of like finding the right person with the right biography and the right story to tell? Or is it that we need to rethink what kind of language, not just liberals, but defenders of an open society against this populist threat, should be using in order to unite people, in order to give people hope for a better future? Well, I think one can do both. And while we are waiting for Godot, um, it may be it may be useful to rethink uh, our our principles and the way that that we describe them. But I, I'm I'm not especially optimistic that an intellectual project of that kind will yield immediate political results. Um, Political movements require political avatars, and none has yet been found. Hmm. Interesting. How how does a political avatar come about? I mean, you're saying that political movements come to be through a political avatar— then how is it that in the past these political avatars have come to be? I, think, I feel like we're debating this sort of existence of God or something. You know? Right. There's no explanation for world before God is explained, right. but then how do you explain God? I mean, there, 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 may, there may not be any explanation, and this is one of the limitations of uh, political science, um, particularly political science of... Um, of a quantitative perspective, um, we we can't we can't predict uh, who will emerge and make a difference. Trump could not have been predicted, or if you want um, a more positive example, uh, Reagan or Lincoln could not have been predicted. And we we need what used to be called statesmen. Yeah, so uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, 
I didn't expect that I would disagree with you of all things on uh, our shared uh, concern about some forms of quantitative political science. Um, but I don't know that I buy this great man theory of the change candidate, right? I think that... So, so there's, there's a story to be told about Donald Trump, which is that he had all of these unique features which made him succeed. But he was already very famous, so he could sort of bypass traditional media. He's a very charismatic speaker. He had a lot of wealth to get his campaign off the ground. And all of that is right. I mean, a lot of factors had to come together for somebody like Donald Trump to be president. But, you know, in a rich, raucous republic of 300 million people, you're always going to find somebody who's super famous, who has money, who would like to be president if they could and who are willing to say whatever it takes. So to me, actually, I'm not sure that quantitative methods are the best or the only way of getting at those. But there has to be a set of deeper factors that made something like Trump possible. Trump is not the first figure like that in American history, but he happened to come along at the first time in American history where the underlying conditions were right for a figure like that to actually ascend to the presidency. Well, that's certainly true. Um, and this may just be a distinction between necessary and sufficient conditions. Um, clearly, Trump and other great men of history um, appear on ground that is not of, of their making. And certain things have to be happening in order for them to reach power um, and achieve their, their historical role. Um, I should say that it's much too soon to tell whether Trump will be that kind of person, uh, either either for good or for ill. But there's there's also something about them that cannot be predicted or quantified, and I think that individuals really do make a difference. It's it's difficult to imagine the. Civil War taking the course that it did without Lincoln. It's difficult to imagine the New Deal taking the course uh, that it did without um, without FDR. So there are things that intellectuals and political activists can do to create the conditions under which it is possible for political movements to emerge, but I don't think they can do all of the work themselves. So in a way, we have to build the groundwork and history in some ways has to build around work, right? I mean, Obama's only possible in counter-reaction to George W. Bush. Um, and there's nothing that sort of activists can do to create those conditions. Um, but they can certainly do the things that are necessary in order to be able to take advantage of those conditions. And then you have to have the luck of a right candidate coming along. The right candidate and, and the right events. So I think that in 2008, many progressives overread um, the significance of Obama's election. They, they thought it reflected a fundamental change of opinion in the country. I think that probably isn't true. Um, he benefited from uh, reaction against the incompetence of, of the Bush administration. Um, and to some extent, the same thing has happened with, with Trump. Um, We've all heard a lot about these mysterious and perplexing voters who voted twice for Obama and then for Trump, but it, it really isn't so perplexing. Um, they thought they were going to get change. They didn't get what they liked, so they're, they're willing to try again. Um, I think that whatever reaction 
Trump produces will have as much to do with the successes or failures of his administration um, as it does to do with any grand theoretical argument. Right. The most important thing about whether or not Trump will get reelected is simply how the economy is going in 2020. Um, I agree with that. Um, I, I find it really interesting that you're saying, look, in some ways, um, Democrats after 2008 misread the meaning of the election and thought that the country had become much more liberal when when it hadn't. And and I guess the implication of that is that they didn't take um, conservative opinion, conservative insight seriously enough on certain kinds of topics. So I'd love to hear you, and now this is not a matter of, sort of talking about Trump or anything like that, but I'd love to hear where you think that sort of liberal interlocutors of yours are making a mistake by not taking conservative ideas seriously enough. And not just in a tactical way, but in an intellectual way. Where do you think that you know, friends of yours like me are sort of most blind to insights that people on the conservative end of the political spectrum um, have. Well, I've been thinking a lot um, about nationalism for obvious reasons. And um, I found Roger Scruton's term oikophobia uh, very helpful. In... You'll have to explain that one. Yeah. So um, the philosopher Roger Scruton um, argues that the modern left and more broadly, um, the people who flourish in universities, um, in international business and other high prestige professions suffer from oikophobia, from a hatred or fear of home. And one sees this in the kind of demonstrative cosmopolitanism of people who live in Washington, having left some other place and are always telling you about their trips to Amsterdam or to London or to Shanghai or wherever. And, and a lot of this, of course, is, is silly. Um, and I, I don't think politics sh should be reduced to lifestyle critique. But I do think that conservatives have detected correctly, uh, a strain of oikophobia in modern progressivism, um, a dislike for home, uh, a dislike for uh, place, particularly the place that one comes from, um, and an embrace of anything different, as more colorful, as, as more wonderful, as superior. And that's the kind of proclivity that doesn't, doesn't have to be said exactly, but is noticed and so, produce, so, pr produces a response. So, you know, I, I, that speaks to something that I've been thinking about a lot, um, but it's not clear to me that conservatives are necessarily as guilty of it. So, so I do think that one of the important changes that has happened over the last 30 or 40 years is that a lot of legislators used to have deep roots in all kinds of parts of a country and often probably expected to go back to those communities once they stopped serving in office. This is a story that's easy to tell in Europe, where many legislators had deep ties either to rural religious communities on the center-right and right, uh, or to trade unions and workers' movements on, on the center-left. Uh, but even in the United States, it seems to me that you know the, the share of congressmen who were uh, educated in coastal universities, who went on to professional lives after college, or perhaps to serve in Congress as you know staffers, who then, you know, keep some kind of connection to a to a home state, to a home constituency, but essentially spend most of the time in D.C. and never really, you know, I'm sure they'll keep a house wherever they're from once they retire from Congress, but they're going to go be lobbyists, they're going to go work 
on Wall Street, they're, they're going to work in New York City or Washington or perhaps San Francisco, or perhaps LA. And so that deep connection to the community back home has been lost. And so then there's sort of two ways of responding to that. There's the more left-wing, cosmopolitan way of responding to that, which is to say, yes, home doesn't matter. I'm a man of the world and, you know, look at my holiday in uh, Amsterdam. Or there's a way of responding to that, which is talking in a very abstract and belligerent way about identity and nationhood without having those real connections. And of course, Donald Trump, you know, he does have a real connection to his hometown of New York City. But New York City, of course, is very much unlike the rest of the country in important ways. So it's odd that he would be the spokesperson against oikophobia. So is the answer to find on both sides of the political spectrum a more sort of organic connection to to place? Well, I'm I'm very sympathetic to that, and this is the kind um, of conservative insight that I wish progressives and liberals took took more seriously. So, one of the social and political developments of the last thirty or forty years that I think um, is important for understanding where we are is is the hollowing out of uh, local associational and political life, which provided not only emotional ties to specific places, to to specific communities, but also an institutional framework for remaining in touch with them. And as Robert Putnam and, and other scholars have documented, these associations were not always good by the most advanced moral and and social standards. They were often exclusionary in in their membership um, and coarse in the kinds of appeals that they made to members, but they served a function. Um, Now they have largely disappeared. And we're observing a sort of bifurcation of the country as people who have college degrees for the most part, um, are drawn into the cities, especially the coastal cities, and those who don't are left behind. And they have very little to do with each other. So one long-term, but I think actually very important strategy, which is a, a personal one rather than an intellectual one, is to go home. George Washington University, I I have many students who come to GW because they want to make careers in Washington, and I respect that. That's that's honorable. Um, But I think it might be even more useful if rather than working on the Hill or in um, advocacy organizations, they went back to all the wonderful places that that they came from to try to restore a connection between the country's governing class and business class and local community. So, look, I agree, and I also sort of think it's just not going to happen. So in my own account of sort of the rise of populism, I essentially have three main factors, which is the stagnation of living standards for ordinary people, a sort of rebellion against either ethnic pluralism or at least ethnic equality, and then this really growing urban-rural divide. And this is something that applies not only in the United States, but around the world. Donald Trump didn't win a majority of a popular vote, but he did win a, a crushing majority of U.S. counties. Um, he just lost in all the densely populated urban counties. Right. That's the same when you look at France, where rural areas were for the Front National in much greater numbers at the Austrian presidential elections uh, a couple of months ago, where you saw the same pattern. And there's deep reasons for that, which is that when you go back to the mid-1970s and you ask 
you know, where would you be more economically affluent if you live somewhere in New York City or if you live in a small town of Michigan? The answer wasn't obvious. There's obviously more rich people in, in New York City, but also many more poor people, and the city as a whole was really struggling. And a rural town in Michigan might have some very good factory jobs, some good middle-class jobs. Not clear which choice you'd make. Now I think it's very clear. New York City's fortunes have kept on improving, um, even as most small towns and places like Michigan have really declined. So one obvious way of counteracting this populist energy and the rise of these populist movements across the world is to not just have people like your students go back to the home communities, but think politically about how you can rebalance some of that urban-rural divide. But when you start talking to people about how to do that, you know, the suggestions they have are just not good enough. And it's not that they're not thinking hard enough, it's that it's really hard to do. So some of the suggestions I've heard is people saying, look, why don't we move some government uh, offices and ministries to local towns? Um, not every um, federal agency has to be in Washington, D.C. Um, why don't we spend more money on infrastructure? Why don't we improve internet connections in rural areas? All of these are good things. But I just sort of don't buy that that'll actually counteract the deep economic drivers that have improved the fortunes of big cities and made smaller, more remote towns struggle. Well, probably they won't, uh, or not not entirely. But that doesn't mean that they aren't worth trying. So I was very sympathetic to Matt Iglesias' suggestion that federal agencies could be moved outside Washington. They don't, they don't have to be moved to tiny towns, but they could be moved to Cleveland, for example, without any real loss in, in efficiency. I think that's quite a good idea. We also have in this country an institutional structure for disaggregating political functions, which is federalism. Progressives historically have been very hostile to federalism because they think that it interferes with the provision of important services by the national government. I think it's re it's time to rediscover federalism and to remember uh, what Alexis de Tocqueville says about federalism. The advantage is not that it produces better government, but that it produces connections between government and the governed that give the governed a stake in the laws and institutions that, that rule them. I think that is a fruitful um, area of reflection and possible, possible cooperation between right and left. But there isn't a simple solution and there isn't a complete solution. I agree with you. So a couple of years ago, we organized an event together at New America NYC. Uh, and the premise was taken from a Gramsci quote. I might butcher it, but it's something like, the old order is defunct and the new has not yet been born. In this interregnum of ideas, a wide variety of morbid symptoms appear. Uh, and the idea that we had was that sort of something in our language no longer described the world very well. And that we hadn't yet found a new way of talking about it. So that we sort of stuck with old concepts, stuck with old norms that don't quite make sense of the political moment we're in. And we're struggling to make sense of this world because we don't have this new vocabulary. But eventually this new vocabulary might come about. Do you have a fear that the sort of what I call the illiberal international, the, the people pushing a liberal democracy in the United States and elsewhere, is that new world? I mean, it's P.P. the Frog. Pepe the Frog, I never know how to pronounce this. Is that sort of the thing that is breaking our interregnum of ideas? I certainly hope not, but I do worry 
about that. And the great challenge for all of us is to find arguments and ways of speaking that address the real problems that we have without uh, giving up principles that are much, much older than that. Um, I think that I have an easier time with this because the ideas that are often called conservative in America, but most of which um, are classical liberal in, in origin, um, are a lot older and more flexible than modern progressivism, which requires one to be absolutely uh, up to the minute um, and offer often um, implies a sort of contempt for history and and experience. So I'm less worried about that because whatever the future holds, I think it will not be the vision of the United States or, or other uh, Western countries as a college campus, which seems to lurk somewhere behind the political imaginations of many of my friends on the left. Well, I can only hope that many of the people who call themselves conservatives um, and yet stand by Donald Trump, who's not a very conservative figure in any sense of a word, uh, will, will heed your words and um, remember some of those traditions. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me, Yasha. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, send out your carrier pigeon. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.